0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you again. I'm, it's good to see. It's good. To, it's always good to be up here. I'm glad that um, I'm glad that Dan and Angela give me the opportunity. The leadership team give me the opportunity, and that you're very patient with me as I as I do these. And I appreciate your comments. Um, Dell told you about his Mother's Day tradition of the teacups. My Mother's Day tradition is a little different. Um, this is the week that I would usually plant my tomatoes outside. Uh, it's not gonna happen, and it's too wet and too cold. And so I don't know, I'm gonna plant them in take 10 days or two weeks. Do we have to, do we do Mother's Day again then? Do, do I have, to, I don't know. So whatever, whatever works, but I'm not gonna do my Mother's Day tradition of planting my tomatoes. It's just too, too cold and too wet. All right, um, we're doing a series um, called The Kingdom Is. And Scott, if we can have the first slide. This is the one-sentence summary that Dan gave us last week. The kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. Now, I'm going to be talking about God's reign again this morning, but I wanted to draw your attention, actually, what drew my attention this week, looking at that phrase, looking at that sentence, was the second part, was through God's people, the word through, you know. It's not in God's people, because it's not just in us, it's for others as well. It's not over God's people, it's through God's people. We are the participants in how God's reign is expressed. The participants, as Dell says, in whatever we put in the offering box, in the seeing the kingdom through the global 6K. But we are the participants who show the world what God's kingdom and God's reign looks like. It's really, it's not my topic for this morning, but, that's, but I think that's a that, the through God's people aspect of this sentence has really resonated with me this week. And the next slide. Um, this is the verse that Dan used last week, and it's a good theme verse for us. Um, it's a familiar verse for many of us, from Matthew 6.33, from the middle of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6.33. And in, it's in the context of Jesus talking about all the things we fret over. We fret over what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, we fret over the, all the, you know, how we're going to provide for ourselves, how we're going to do all these things. And Jesus says very clearly, make it a priority to seek God's reign. Make that a priority. Not that we give up anything in doing that. All of our other activities still go on, all the things that we still walk around in clothing, we still eat, we still do, we still have all those other activities. But we accept that these are his blessings to us. So that all of our activities, no matter what they are, become enhanced and they have, they're given eternal values to express what God's reign looks like. We may not see that all the time. We may not see that very often, that we're expressing God's reign. And it may not be exactly what we want it to be or what it looks like, what we expect it to be, but it is God's reign through God's people. Okay, so today's passage, which is the next slide, is from the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1. This is just as Jesus is just beginning his ministry. And here's, here's the verse. After John, meaning John the Baptist, after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Okay, so the kingdom of God can be a pretty slippery concept. You think you get it and it sort of slips away. Shall sure we get it? Okay, and people have defined it many different ways. But, okay, let's set that aside for the moment. And let's look at this passage and say, here are three things that we recognize right away about the kingdom of God. Whatever more you want to say, and whatever else you want to say, here are three things in this passage that are, that become really, that are really clear. First, Jesus says the time has come Something you've been, they've been waiting for a long time, something that they've been anticipating, something they've been expecting, something they've been hoping for, it's happening now as Jesus begins his ministry. It's not something in the sweet by and by in the distant future. It's now. It's an interesting thing about prophecy. Prophecy, in almost all cases in the Bible, um, talks about what is going to happen, but not when it's going to happen. So, of course, this is what theologians and Bible readers and amateur Bible studies and stuff, they get real invested in, when is this going to happen? They write books on, when is this going to happen? But the Bible itself doesn't usually do that. It talks about what is going to happen without giving a when, which is why we see often with prophecies, things that happen now and they happen in the future and they happen, keep happening. There's a, it's happening, but it's still going to happen in the future. But Jesus says... This is a key moment. It's happening now. Something they've been anticipating, possibly for a long time, something really important, something monumentally important, is happening now as he begins his ministry. So that's the first thing we see, that whatever the kingdom, however we want to understand it, however we think about it, it's happening now. Second. The kingdom requires a response from his listeners and from us. Repent. There are, make some changes. There are some changes that are required in the way we think about things, changes in the way we act about things. Maybe there's some sin we have to get rid of in our lives. But it's going to require us to change. Repent. And believe. Why believe? Because it might not look exactly like we expect it to. We have to believe that it's God at work, God's reign, through God's people, over his place, even if it doesn't look exactly like we expect it to. All Right? So it's a key moment. It requires a response. And here's the third part. It's good news. It may not look exactly like we expect. It may not... You know, I've prayed to God different times. I said, Lord, if I had been doing this, I might have done it a little differently. Well, it's good news. You know, that's the, that's the third part. It's good news. Okay, so whatever you define the kingdom to be, However you think about it, these three points, it's monumentally important and it's happening now with Jesus' ministry, uh, it's going to require a response, and it's good news. So those are three things that we see right away. So how do you hear this? What do you think Jesus meant? It's not so familiar to us because, of course, our country started off with, we serve no sovereigns here. Well, they all kinds so we never have had that kind of a king or an empire over us. Although we've had, we'll get back to that. We've had other, we have other kinds. Um, but for the Jews in Jesus' audience, they would have understood this differently. They would have understood this, um, or how might they have understood it? They were very familiar with kingdoms and empires. They'd had kings themselves in the distant past. They had David and Solomon and all those kings and and. So they Solomon's glo- kingdom was glorious; it was spectacular. So they kind of knew from their from their cultural history what the kingdom might look like. But then their ancestors were conquered, and they were taken into, They were taken into exile, and they were ruled by the empire of the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the. The Romans. And along the way, there were the Egyptians and the Syrians who did it partly, who came in for some parts of their history. So, for the last, you know, 500 and some years, 575 years or something, 600 years probably by the time Jesus was talking, um, they'd been under the authority of some other kingdom, some other empire. So they knew what this looked like. And even now in Jesus' time, Roman soldiers were. Patrolling the streets to enforce their kingdom, to enforce their empire, so they had firsthand experience with empires and kingdoms. And Jesus is going back in this in this passage to a prophecy that was going to be very familiar with them. And Jesus, in a, in his teaching and in his life, he regularly goes back to the Book of Daniel. Daniel's, I mean, we have Daniel in the lion's den, we have the writing on the wall, we have the fiery furnace, and then we have lots of the parts of Daniel where you say, I don't know what's going on. But Jesus is regularly going back to the book of Daniel in, in the way he refers to himself, for example. And this is one of the examples where he is going, he's taking them back to something that happened in the book of Daniel. And it's in Daniel chapter 2. You may, you may be familiar with this passage but they would certainly have been familiar with it because it was important to their lives. all right. In the book of Daniel, you you might remember that the the Jews had been taken captive by the Babylonians and the king of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, a great king with a big empire and so on, he has a dream one night that really upsets him. He can't remember what it is, but he knows that it's really upsetting to him. And in the course of events, Daniel... A Jewish man in, in working in the government officials there is brought to his attention and, and Daniel says, "By the help of God's God, I can tell you what your dream was and what it means And the dream that Daniel tells him about says, "You saw this gigantic big statue, this huge statue, and the head was made of gold and the Shoulders and the chest were made of silver, and the waist and, the, and so on, the torso was made of bronze, and then the lower legs were made of iron mixed with clay. So that was your dream. But then you saw a rock, not hewn with human hands, not cut with human hands, up on the hillside, all by itself apparently, comes rolling down and it crashes into the statue hitting it at the feet of clay, which is where we get the expression feet of clay, right? Chances are when we use that expression, we're not thinking of King Nebuchadnezzar, but that's where it comes from, right? And this rock then smashes, not just, bring, not just topples the statue, statue down, but actually smashes it. it, pulverizes it into bits, right? The gold, the silver, the bronze, the, the legs, they're all pulverized by this rock. And then Daniel says, okay, your kingdom, your empire, is the gold, the gold head. But there are going to be empires after you that will succeed you. You'll be conquered and you'll be taken over by these other ones. But at some point, God will act, and this rock, not hewn by hands, which is clearly an act of God, Will come and will smash all of these empires and destroy all of them. So, if we can have the next slide, and here's the verse Daniel 2 44. In the time of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, it's God's kingdom, will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end but it itself will endure forever. That was the prophecy that Jesus was calling to mind. God's kingdom is here. This is, what we're, this is what's happening. Over the many centuries, this dream had been interpreted, and still is, as reflecting the Babylonian Empire with the head, the Persian Empire, which succeeded it as the silver part, the Greeks under Alexander the Great as the bronze part, and then the Romans with the, the iron mixed with clay. And um, so what about this rock? The rock became referred to as the chosen one, or the Messiah. This was the one who was going to come and smash all the earthly kingdoms. And, and because the other parts of the statue. The statue was understood in terms of earthly empires and earthly kingdoms with armies and laws and political forces and so on and so on. The interpretation for the Jews was that so would the rock. It would be a Jewish empire. It would be similar to that. It would smash all the other ones it would be Jewish nationalism. And that they would rule forever and ever. And, all right, Their kingdom would never end. So in the centuries between Daniel and Jesus, many different Jewish military leaders and political leaders came and rose up and said, this is me, I'm the rock. I'm the one who's going to do this. One account that I read said there were 30, at least 30 of them active just before the time of Jesus or certainly after and, and after his time. Leaders who said by force, by military force, by, by Jewish leaders, insurrectionists, who said by their, by, that they're going to set up this kingdom that will never end. They were going to use their fa- powers to do this. All of them were put down quickly, some more quickly than others. Even Jesus, as Jesus was beginning his ministry, or certainly before, in 25 AD, there was a man named Judas the Galilean. Um, so, and he started an insurrection in Galilee. So even the very towns that Jesus was, was teaching in, at the very, right before Jesus started teaching, a military insurrection that lasted a few years before the Romans came in and burned villages to the ground. And you know, we kind of see what burning villages to the ground looks like now if you're watching the news. And killing and displacing thousands of Jews. So Jesus is saying, the kingdom is now. I'm the rock. I'm going to set up this kingdom. This is how they would hear it. And so why did all these other ones fail? What was it that they misunderstood, or how did they understand the kingdom, or how did they think about it? Well, first off, they had a certain expectation of what an empire was going to look like. It was going to be a military empire, a political empire, it was going to have laws, it was going to have armies, it was going to have all these things. It was going to exalt, the, it was going to put the Jews on top. So they, they had the wrong expectations. But the reason they had the wrong expectations is because they identified the wrong enemy. The enemy wasn't Rome or any of the empires of the earth. That was not the enemy. The enemy was the power of Satan as exercised in spiritual darkness, holding the power of death. That was the enemy. Not the political empires, those were going to pass away, even Rome passed away eventually. But the spiritual power of death was the enemy. And that's what Jesus was saying he's gonna conquer. So, because of that, because the spiritual power of darkness rules the world that we know We live in a world that's upside down from what God said. Go back to Eden. Eden was the last time, the Garden of Eden, that God's world was right side up. The people, Adam and Eve, were in a right relationship with God. They were in a right relationship with each other. They were in a right relationship with the world all around them. But their sin, the spiritual power and the spiritual power of darkness came in, turned it all upside down. So the world we know is not right side up. So when we look at God's kingdom, we see it as an upside down kingdom because it is so very different than what we're used to. So Dan used this phrase last week, the upside down kingdom, to talk about God's kingdom. If I could have the next slide, please. It's it's entered into sort of the vocabulary of Christian circles many places. This term, the upside down kingdom and describing God's kingdom. But it has an origin. And it turns out I was a professor even before I was a professor. So I get to be a professor again and explain all these background things. So even before I became a professor, I was a professor, it was my personality. All right, so I'm still a professor. I have a t-shirt that says I may be retired, but I'm still a professor. My daughter gave it to me. Um, It comes, the term, the upside-down kingdom, comes from a writer, a Christian sociologist named Donald Craybill. In 1978, he wrote a book called The Upside-Down Kingdom. And he said he took the term from one of his teachers, but it hadn't been used before that. The Upside-Down Kingdom, that book, went through and it was read widely. It won awards for Christian Book of the Year, influential book. It became introduced into teachings everywhere. So as a result, the phrase Upside-Down Kingdom entered the vocabulary as Christians talk about this. In the same way Feet of Clay enters the vocabulary as we talk about weaknesses. I read the book the first time, The Upside-Down Kingdom, a few years after it came out. Um, it's a very challenging book. Um, Deb and I then read it again with some friends of ours. We read and discussed it uh, late 80s, early 90s, so maybe you know, so, say 15 years after it came out. And then, 2005-ish or something, I thought, I wonder if that book is really, if that really held up. So I read it again. And then, knowing I was gonna teach on this and when Dan used the phrase last week, I downloaded the new anniversary edition of it. I'm about 40% through it. And uh, to read it again. And Deb said to me as I downloaded it and started reading it, she said something very important. She said, so in all of this, has it actually impacted our lives? Has the book? Did the book have any impact on us on the way we think, on the way we act, and so on? And as I'm reading it now, there's time I'm thinking, whoa, this had a really profound impact on us. Not that we've lived it all out, we certainly haven't, but it's a really profound change in the way we see the world, the way we value things, the way we understand what it means. So Craybill says he uses the term upside down to describe God's kingdom because for three reasons. First off, it reminds us that the world has, he's a sociologist, that the world has social orders. There are people on top, people below. There are the have-nots, there are the haves, there are the have-mores, there are the -the have-the-mosts. There's a, no matter what you're talking about, in authority, money, power, influence, no matter what there's a social order, and God's order of what God values is almost the complete reversal of what we value, what is valued in the world around us. I'm going to give some examples in a minute. Second, the term upside down reminds us that the world we see is actually not the way the world was meant to be. Things don't have to be this way. We shouldn't just accept this is the way it's been because it's upside down. God's world is different. Third, it attempts to recapture the unexpected and surprising twists and turns that Jesus taught and demonstrated. If you read the Gospels and you're not surprised, well, I'm always surprised. You know, how many times? I, mean, I went to Sunday school as a little boy, right? I've gone to church my whole life. And I read the, and I think, whoa, that's not what I expected. That's kind of different. And if we've lost that sense of surprise in understanding it, let me give you a couple of examples. The last, are, the last will be first. When we use that phrase, we think, well, you know, we're going to go by reverse alphabetical order this time or somebody who came in last place and the, the last time we played the game is going to win it this time we use it something like that but Jesus was saying no the people who are the last who have always been the last who are the last, the downtrodden the, they're going to be valued Somebody's, somebody we know is not doing what we think we say I'll grow up act your age And Jesus said, no, no, behave like children. A few pennies contributed by a widow was more valuable to God than the money given by a big money donor. Think about that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't value, if if somebody gives a lot of money, if they look and say, no, I really God has told me I need to give this to advance his kingdom for his purposes by all means. But if it's to give it to get your name on the on the building or the wall or something like that, that's you know that we value the big money donors because they allow us to accomplish our kingdoms. When we look at the world and we look at God's kingdom, sometimes we don't know whether we should laugh or cry. It's such a surprising and paradoxical teaching in life that many people assume that this kingdom must be something way off because it's certainly not the, you know, when we die or something. It's certainly not the world we know now, but it's not that. Jesus said the time was fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. It was starting with his ministry and his reign. Jesus embodied the kingdom. Next slide is a quote from Donald Crabel about this. What exactly is the kingdom of God? The term defies definition because it is pregnant with a multitude of meanings. This, in fact, is his genius, the power to stimulate our imagination again and again. So the kingdom of God is something we're constantly discovering. We're constantly re- re- rediscovering, we're discovering, Learning, the process of discovery. Again, let me try to illustrate with just a couple of examples. And I invite you, in fact, I encourage you. Because I can't give homework anymore. I have to give you homework. (laughs) But here's your homework, all right? If you want to do it. I'm not going to grade it. I'm graded this time. Here's your homework. Either by yourself or just, just sit down in a small group or in your Bible study group or Whatever. Try to think of examples of where what we value in our world and in the society around us is the exact reversal of what God values. And I'll give you a few just to get you started. We know kings, empires, rulers, authorities, they accumulate wealth and possessions for themselves. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus embodied the kingdom of God, and that's not what he did. He valued generosity. He said, you know, the birds of the air have necks, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man, I turned from Daniel, has no place to lay his head. A king rewards his friends and allies and punishes his enemies. That's what empires do. They're based on that. Right? Jesus said, No. That's what earthly empires do, but in my kingdom, it'll be different. People answer to the emperor or the ruler or the CEO or whatever, but he himself answers to no one. We emphasize how many direct reports are there to me, rather than how many people lie on this authority to. Now, unless you think we don't know about empires, I'll give you another example. I was the emperor of my classroom, or my research lab. What kind of an emperor was I? A couple of months ago, we were flying, and Deb and I were in two different TSA security lines. And in Deb's security line, the guy said, put your stuff in the, in the bin, put your, take your coat off, put your shoes off, put it in the bin, figure out your electronics, put it through the bin. All right. In my security line, it's always my line, said, OK, put it in the bin. I want your shoes in this spot, I want your jacket in this spot, I want your computer on the bottom, then your tablet, then your phone, and why did it matter? Well, that security line was his empire, and he was going to rule it. The empire may be who controls the refrigerator in the break room. The empire can be the office supply cabinet. Boy, don't run afoul of the person who controls office supplies. We all have empires, and we rule them. But do we rule them as under God's reign, with God's authority? I'll give you two more examples, and I'll stop. Well, keep going, but I'll stop giving examples. I could go on forever on these examples. The leader is not the one who goes into battle. The leader says, I'll be right there with you, but you don't see Vladimir Putin driving a tank. You don't see any of the Pentagon people out on the front lines. You don't see the CEO actually often working working in the things. Why not? Well, they could get hurt. They could even be killed doing that. What did Jesus do? He was on the front lines. He was killed. That's the only way that kingdom was going to be defeated. The kingdom of death was only going to be defeated by his death and his resurrection. One more. Kings and emperors and big people, the ruling authorities, they like to put uh, their names on things. And they put their pictures up and their image on things. In the old days, they would have put their image on a coins, for example. So when Jesus said the very familiar thing, he said, You know, give me a coin, and he looks at the coin and says, whose image is on the coin? And he says, Caesar, and they say, okay, so render under Caesar the things that are Caesar, and under God's the things that are God. Let me explain what he's saying. The money and the things of this earth, they belong to Caesar. But whose image is on you? Whose image do you bear? See, God didn't put his image... On any th- on, he put his image on us. That's why the kingdom is expressed through us. Alright. The religious authorities missed the kingdom when Jesus came because their own expectations of what the kingdom would look like blinded them. They identified the wrong enemies so and they expected the wrong kingdom. The kingdom is not a destination that we reach. We seek it, we discover it, we explore God's reign through God's people, over God's place actually means. And we keep learning about it. And no matter how we understand it, no matter how we understand it, it's monumentally important and happening now. It requires a response and it is good news. Let me go for one more quote from Donald Crable. It's the next slide. He invites us not to Study, but to join. Not to dissect, but to enter. What will we do with it? How will we respond? How will we respond? Let me pray. Lord, This is so challenging for us, because we're so used to a world that just does not operate the way we expect. That's That's why your kingdom seems so upside down to us. But we know that the real power is the power of death. And we know that you conquered that. You conquered death in your resurrection. Once and for all, there was no power left. And we praise you for that. We praise you, and this is good news. We thank you that we are given the chance to participate in your kingdom, expressing your reign over your place. In the name of Christ, who rules forever and ever, amen.